Well, good afternoon. Our sermon text for this Lord's Day is Lamentations chapter 4. And we'll be reading the entirety of the chapter, Lamentations, beginning in verse uh, number 1 and going to the end. So if you have your Bibles there or your bulletins, would you please rise and join with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. So Lamentations chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the works or the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. But the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like that of sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the, were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of fruits out of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. Who shed blood, or who shed in the midst, in her midst, the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, They shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we waited for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their midst, in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish 
he will uncover your sins. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may have a seat, and would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we're coming to the end very soon of our uh, time in Lamentations, Father, I pray that you would uh, bless the reading of your word, that you would bless the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would accompany it and that we would be taught. And Lord, that as we read these old covenant scriptures, we can see the greatness of Christ, Lord, which they all point towards. So, Father, I pray this in his name. Amen. There are many things in our lives or things that we see that we think are so amazing, so great, so strong and perfect that they could never fail us, that they could never crumble before us and let us down. We look throughout history of things like this. We think famously of the Titanic, the greatest ship in the world that could never sink but eventually did sink. We think of the time of the Great Depression. Right before it, it was called the Roaring Twenties. And when the Depression hit, people were amazed. They were bewildered, confused. How could something that seemed to be so great fall so quickly? Perhaps even the last two years, or almost two years, as COVID has been with us, many people were taken by surprise. Things seemed relatively peaceful and stable, but look at how easily things can fall apart. Maybe children have grown up in a home looking at their parents and thinking, everything is so strong, but then they're surprised when a divorce comes. Maybe we've looked at a teacher, a pastor, and we thought, they're such great teachers, such wonderful men of God, and we look at them with respect. And then they fall, and we're surprised. How could this happen? Many times we lift things up, and we look at them as being amazing and great, but then they surprise us when they fall. In our text, we see something similar. We see the fall of Jerusalem. And we see in verse 12, it even says that the kings of the earth did not believe, nor any inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. In fact, throughout this entire text, we see that there's a comparison made between what Jerusalem used to look like before its fall and what it looks like afterwards. We see there in verse 1, the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. Verse number 5, those who once feasted on delicacies they perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple, in riches and luxuries, they embrace the ash heaps. Verses 7 and 8, they speak of her princes being pure and purer than snow, beautiful, but then being blackened with soot and ashes, unrecognizable for what they once were. And there are more throughout this chapter. But we also see something very interesting. If we were to look throughout verses 13 and 20, we won't look at them again, but we'll notice a few things. We see in verse 13 why all of this happened. And it says, This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. We have two offices here, two great offices established by God. 
but they were sinful. They were misused. Those who bore these offices were unfaithful. We go forward down to verse number 20, and we see someone called the Lord's anointed. This is referring to the king. It says that the people, they placed so much hope in this king. He was the breath of their nostrils. He was the one that they were to be protected by. And under him, they could live among the nations. Yet we see that this king is also captured. In Israel, we have these three great anointed offices. The prophet, the priest, and the king. But we see in this passage, all three of them are unfaithful. All three of these offices fail the people. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we see the disciples of Jesus calling him the Christ. This, of course, is the Greek word for the Messiah. If we were to translate this into English, we would have the anointed one. When the disciples called Jesus the anointed one, they said that he was the Christ according to the scriptures. They were thinking through their Old Testament scriptures when they called him the Christ, when they called him the anointed one. They knew that throughout the history of, pe of God's people, there had been many anointed ones. There had been other messiahs, in a sense. There were anointed prophets. There were anointed priests. There had been anointed kings. But Jesus was the long-awaited, definitive Messiah. He was the ultimate anointed one, the one who truly could save the people of God, who could be faithful. So when we speak of Christ, and we call him Christ, the anointed one, we are saying that he is the definitive prophet. He is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. Now, we have spoken of these offices uh, throughout our time of Lamentations. Remember a few weeks ago, Reverend Foster talked about how God did not spare those who held these offices. They were also taken away during the destruction. A few weeks ago, when I was preaching, I was speaking about the prophets who are unfaithful. Now, today we see all three of these offices, but we won't focus on all of them. Uh, it would take too much time to look at all three of them in depth. But today I would like to focus on the one that is given the most attention, and that is the office of the priest. We see in this text that the priests were unfaithful and they were wicked. But I want us to look at two areas where they were failures, two areas where they failed the people that they were supposed to minister to, but I want us to also look at the way that Christ, the definitive priest, fulfills these two duties where these priests failed. We will see how Christ is the faithful one. So first, let us look at the first failure of the priests, which was a failure to teach the people. The first failure was where the priests failed to teach the people. Now this is hinted at in our text today. And it's brought out more explicitly in other prophetic passages. But we see this in verse 13, where it says, The iniquity of the priests 
who shed in the midst of Jerusalem, in the midst of her, the blood of the righteous. Now, who were these righteous people that the text is speaking about? Uh, some have said that this refers to uh, simply people in the city uh, who had done no wrong, who did not deserve to be put to death, but were. But many commentators have said that because Jeremiah is presently judging the people of Israel, it's more likely that the righteous refers to the many righteous prophets that God had sent, but the people killed. We think of Jesus later speaking of the religious rulers, saying that they had many times killed the prophets that God had sent to them. Here in this passage, it would seem that that is who this is speaking of. When they are defiled by, by the blood of the righteous, it is speaking of the righteous prophets that God had sent to them. These priests were to lead the people in true worship. They were to reveal to people the knowledge of God. If you were to go to Numbers chapter 3, you would see where God is describing the duties of the Levitical priesthood. And there it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. But they fail in this. If we were to go to another prophetic passage, Hosea chapter 4, and look at verses 4 through 6, you see the prophets here condemning the priests. And it says there that the Lord says, For it is with you, O priest, my contention. And what is God's contention with the priest in this passage? There it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being priest to me. The priests of Judah suppressed true prophets by killing them and spilling their blood. They have rejected true and pure religion, leading the people into idolatrous worship. They failed to reveal God to the people. As the people were to come to the temple, the priests were to show them, look at the tabernacle, look at the temple, see the beauty of God. See the sacrifices and know your need for him. Understand the division between clean and unclean and know your impurities. Know your infirmities and your sins and your need for being pure before the Lord. Look at the furnishings of the tabernacle and the temple. Notice the beautiful imagery, but notice that there is no image of God. This is who God is. He cannot be seen. He is above our understanding. And yet he condescends to tell us about himself. In this way, through this worship, they were to teach the people who God was and what he desired. But they failed. Instead, they led the people into wickedness. And this was devastating. It was not because the people weren't unversed in complex theological issues. This wasn't the nitty-gritty of systematic theology. 
But the priests had not shown the people who God was. The people did not know who it was that they were supposed to be worshiping. And so we see that these priests failed to teach the people. But there is another failure as well. The second failure that we see uh, that these priests have is that they have a failure to cleanse the people. They fail to teach, and they also fail to cleanse. These priests were set apart for God's service. They were anointed with oil. Only the priests could enter the inner parts of the, te- of the temple. They could offer the sacrifices that would cover the sins of the people. They would bring peace between the people and God. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and there he would mediate between God and the people. In short, they were to make the people clean. When someone became ritually impure or unclean, when someone became morally unclean, it was the priests who would make the people clean through their mediation. But look at what happens instead. If we go to verse number 13, it says there that these priests, they shed in the midst of Jerusalem the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. Then it says they were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. Then it says, so they became fugitives and wanderers. And the people said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. It was the purpose of the priest to make people clean. And yet by slaughtering righteous blood, they themselves were defiled. They were unclean and unfit to cleanse the people. It would be like if you were trying to do your dishes and you had a pan that was covered in oil or grease And you kept scrubbing it, and you kept wiping it with your cloth, but it never cleaned it. And then you look at the cloth, and you see that what you're using, your your rag, your cloth, is so covered in grease that there's more oil in grease than there is water. And no matter how much you try to cleanse the pan or the pot, you can never do it with this rag. It's too filthy itself. When the people want to be cleansed. They were to go to the priests. But now, if they came to the priest to be cleansed, it was the priest who was crying, unclean, unclean. And they could not even touch their garments. Oftentimes when we look at these old covenant types, people like the prophets, the priests, and the king, we say that they point to Christ. If we were to look at Moses, the Bible says that another prophet like Moses would be risen up. And this speaks to Christ. So Moses is pointing to Christ. When we think of David as king, he points to Christ the king. When we think of Aaron the priest, he points to Christ the priest. But when we look at texts like this, and we see these wicked priests, They don't only point out to Christ, but they cry out to him. They cry out saying, where is a priest that can cleanse me? 
Where is a priest who can reveal who God is to me? Where is a mediator who can cleanse me? Where is someone who can show me who God is, what he thinks, how he is to be worshipped? Where is one? Because all we have here are priests who themselves are idolatrous and crying out unclean. But to this plea, God is faithful and he is merciful. And he sends us his own son, Jesus, the anointed one. And so now I would like us to focus on how Christ is the faithful one. Whereas these priests were unfaithful and wicked, we will see that Christ is faithful and he is righteous. Jesus is faithful in the first area where these priests were failures. As these priests wickedly killed the true prophets and they led the people in adulterous worship, they failed to teach them rightly of who God is. We look at John chapter 1 and verse 18 and we see what it says about Jesus. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Word who was with God and who was God became flesh. The Son who was eternally with the Father, eternally begotten at the Father's side, of the same divine essence of the Father, being God Himself, He became a man and He taught the truth of God in the fullest sense. If we were to go to Colossians chapter 1, we see Paul explaining how this is done. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, there it says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, is, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How does God ultimately reveal himself to us? It is by sending us his son. It is by taking on flesh and revealing in the truest sense who he is. In the incarnation of the son and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we see that God is triune. He is one in his being, but he is three in person. He is eternal love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. What is God like? What does he think about his creation? How does he command that we live? What does he want us to pray for? How does he want us to approach him? These things are revealed to us by Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. While the wicked 
And the unfaithful priests failed to show who God was and uphold true worship. Our high priest, Jesus, cleanses the temple, and by his spirit, he dwells with his church. While the wicked priests shed the blood of the righteous, Christ dies for the ungodly, and he sheds his own blood to make us righteous. Calvin speaks of Jesus being the image of God and how he reveals God to us by saying that God in himself, in his naked majesty, is invisible. And that not only to the physical eyes, but also to human understanding. Just as we cannot see God, we cannot truly understand him in all of his greatness. But he is revealed to us in Christ alone where we may behold him as a mirror. For in Christ he shows us his righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, in short, his entire self. If you want to know who God is and what God is like, look to Christ. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father also. In Jesus, the fullness of deity, the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell. Looking at the face of Christ, we see the face of God. And in knowing this God, we have perfect peace. We have perfect cleansing of our sins. While the wicked priests were failures in this first way, a failure to teach, Jesus succeeds not only in this, but also in the second way. Jesus ultimately cleanses his people. Jesus is faithful in this way as well. We saw this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. There it says that in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is God in the flesh. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, he makes peace by the blood of his cross. There Christ brings the peace of God by cleansing us with his own blood. You know, one of the greatest works that we see of Christ is his cleansing work. How he makes those who are unclean become fully whole and fully clean. In our text, we see some verses that point to this aspect of the Old Covenant law. In verses 14 and 15, it says that these priests were defiled to where they said, unclean, unclean. Well, this is speaking to the distinction between something being clean and something being unclean. Perhaps you've been reading through the book of Leviticus and you see portions where it talks about animals that are clean or animals that are unclean or different things that make a person unclean. This is a large portion of God's ceremonial law. In fact, if you were to look at Leviticus chapter 10, you see God saying that Aaron and the priests were to distinguish between the holy and the common, between what is unclean and what is clean. And they are to teach this to the people. They are to teach people this distinction. They are to show them so that the people understand that they are separate from other nations. They are to notice that 
Throughout their lives, they are continually being defiled or made unclean and having to be restored so that they might understand their own need to be purified, their own need to be clean. In fact, if you read through many of these laws, it could seem like nearly everything could defile a person. Uh, some things that aren't sinful in and of themselves. You may touch a dead corpse and become unclean and need to be purified. A woman may have her menstrual period. A man may have a, a discharge of bodily fluid, a discharge of semen, and become unclean. You may eat something that is unclean and need to be purified and cleansed. Because of this, the people lived regularly, regularly and constantly, restoring their cleanliness before God, even throughout the ordinary course of their lives. Now these laws between clean and unclean were intended to be a picture that showed them that the totality of their lives, all of their lives, was by nature unclean. And when they were unclean, they would go to a priest for cleansing. But we see in our text that the priests were avoided. The, the priests themselves were unclean. To touch one of these priests would defile you even more. And so they could not go to them. Instead, they were rejected and cast off. But when you read the Gospels and you see the miracles of Jesus, do not forget this distinction between unclean and clean. It's very important to read the New Testament, understanding the background of the Old Testament. Though sometimes the book of Levit Leviticus or Deuteronomy, it might seem very disconnected uh, from our New Covenant worship, it's not. Our New Covenant worship is founded upon the prophets and the apostles, and it comes out of God's work throughout um, his covenant people and covenant history. If you were to, for example, look at Leviticus chapter 13, you would see laws about leprosy. And if you were to look at that chapter, Leviticus chapter 13, and verses 45 through 46, you would see that when it speaks of someone who has a skin disease of leprosy, it says that that person who has this disease shall wear torn clothes, and they shall let the hair of their head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has this disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. If someone were a leper, if someone were diseased in this way, they were to live isolated, not only for the physical health of others around them, but also to show a message of uncleanliness. But if you go in your Bibles to the book of Mark, and you look at chapter 1, verse 40, though these lepers were supposed to be isolated, away from people, though if you were to touch one of these lepers, you would become unclean as well, we see something interesting when Jesus heals the lepers. If we go to Mark chapter 1, verse 40, it says, 
And a leper came to Jesus, came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. This is ceremonial religious language being used. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And that's important, the way that he heals him. He touches this man with leprosy. And he says, I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Not simply healthy, but clean. Now compare Jesus to the wicked priests. The wicked priests, if you were to touch their garments, you would become defiled. These priests are saying, unclean, unclean, don't touch me. If you were to touch them, you would become unclean. But if someone who is unclean touches Christ, it is not Jesus who becomes unclean or defiled, but it is that person who is unclean that becomes whole, pure, and cleansed. We see this throughout the Gospel of Mark and in other places. You think of the woman who has an issue of blood. This makes her unclean. And she says, if I can touch his garment, then I can become clean. And when she does, she becomes clean. We think of the 12-year-old girl who is dead. This is a corpse. If you touch a corpse, you become unclean. But the Bible says that Jesus reaches out his hand and touches her, and she becomes alive. She becomes clean. In every, clay, in every case, it is not Jesus who becomes defiled, but it is the defiled person who becomes clean. We must remember that we are in need of a priest like this. We are born saying, unclean, unclean. We need a priest who can not only reveal to us who our Creator is, who we have gone astray from, but we need a priest who can cleanse us, who can bring us peace between us and that Creator. The totality of our lives is also wicked and unclean. We may look towards other things to bring us stability, but those other things will fail us. The greatest instability of our lives that we come into this world with is that our relationship between us and our Creator is unstable. We are born with him as our enemy, with us against him, with his judgment upon us. That is a very unstable place to be. But the Bible says that Jesus brings us peace through his blood. There are many things that we might look towards for stability, but without Christ and his cleansing, we will be unstable. We think of this text and we see the people. They were at one point, they thought they were so stable. They thought that they had this king who would protect them. They thought that they had these prophets who were telling them everything is good. They thought that they had the priests who could bring them cleansing. But ultimately, they had nothing. They were very unstable. And so when everything fell apart, they were bewildered. They didn't know what happened. 
Sometimes in our lives, we look towards things thinking we can find stability in them. Perhaps we look towards our spouse and we think, my life is good. I'm married to this good person. I have this plan for the rest of my life. Or maybe we say, I look towards my parents. You know, things are really, really well. Maybe we look to our job and we think things are good. In the foreseeable future, nothing really bad can happen. I feel stable. Maybe I look to myself. I say, you know, I'm strong. I'm smart. I know what I can do. I believe in myself. I'm very stable. But if we look towards these things for stability, when they fail us, which they often do, we will become like the people in our text, bewildered. How could this happen? Where do I go from now? What do I do with my life? But if our stability is Christ, no matter what around us falls, he remains faithful. He remains stable. When we look to great preachers who we thought could never fall, who we thought were there for our instruction and they could help us, whether that's a spouse or parents or friends or family, or job, or anything at all. When we look to these things and we think that they can keep us sturdy and they fall, they become like sinking sand. It's having our foundation built upon something other than Christ. It is sand and it is weak and it gives way and falls apart. But if your strength comes from Christ and what he has done for you by cleansing you, and bringing you peace with God, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what falls apart, he remains faithful, and his promises remain steady and true. And that can give us the amazing gift that whatever happens in this life, we can be content, and we can be firm and steadfast, knowing that not all is lost, because we truly have a king who sits on an unshakable throne. We have a prophet who will not give us false information. And we have a priest who will not defile us, but he will make us clean and reveal to us who God is. Now as we close, if we look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, here it shows us how beautifully Christ fulfills this office of high priest. There it says, But when Christ, when this faithful anointed one, appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, something steadfast and trustworthy. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. By faith in Christ, you are made clean. 
You have peace with God. You are adopted into his family, and you follow his law with joy, having your conscience purified unto good works. How backwards it would be to be purified by Christ and then to seek out sin and to continue in a sinful life. Imagine being healed of your leprosy by Christ, but then going to find another leper so that you might defile yourself once again. How backwards that would be. Christ has cleansed us. And now throughout our lives, we desire to live how he has made us, cleansed and pure in his righteousness. In a few moments, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper. It is Christ's blood that makes us clean. It is his body that was sacrificed that brings us atonement, that establishes a relationship with our Father. When that Passover lamb was killed and it saved the people from destruction, you remember that the people ate of that sacrifice. They partook of it. Matthew Henry speaks of this sacrifice that was ultimately laid down by our high priest, saying, remember that, or it says that the Passover lamb was killed not to be looked on only, but to be, but to be fed upon. So we must by faith make Christ ours, feeding upon him. You see, it's one thing to simply say that Christ is the sacrifice. It's one thing to say that that Passover lamb is a Passover lamb. But it's another thing to partake of him. To by faith say, this is my Passover lamb. That this is my sacrifice. And I place my trust in him. When we come to the supper, we have a chance to do this to look to Christ our sacrifice, who shed his blood, who had his body torn and broken for us, and partake through the Spirit, his body and blood, for our benefit, so that we might be strengthened and nourished to walk in this life with our consciences purified and renewed so that we might live for him. Look to Christ for nourishment and for strength in this life as you desire to be more and more like him, your high priest. He has revealed to you who God is. God is love. God is forgiving of our sins for all those who come to him in faith and repentance. He loves his people so much that he gives his life for them. Praise God that the Lord has not left us with wicked priests, but has sent his son to be a faithful high priest who not only reveals to us who God is, but cleanses us of our sins so that that God might be our father and dwell with us for all eternity. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Father, Lord, we want to thank you for this great love that you have shown to us that we can be called your sons. Lord, we are wicked. We are defiled. Throughout our lives, we cry out, unclean, unclean. But God, you have shown us mercy. You have sent your Son 
to be our priest and our sacrifice. Father, we pray that we would live for you, that we would believe you in this. Father, that we would trust in Christ. Lord, it's our desire that we become more and more like him, united to him. Lord, you said that by coming to Christ in repentance and in faith, we are united to him. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless us in that today. Lord, I pray that you would bless your word and that you would bless the supper in a moment. Lord, that you would bless your people, making us one with Christ and one with you, with this grace peace that you have given us, or this great peace that you have given us. Father, I praise your name. I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.